Number 13. The Secret of Success. Commerce, empires, and universal religions eventually brought virtually every sapiens on every continent into the global world we live in today. Not that this process of expansion and unification was linear or without interruptions. Looking at the bigger picture, though, the transition from many small cultures to a few large cultures, and finally to a single global society was probably an inevitable result of the dynamics of human history. But saying that a global society is inevitable is not the same as saying that the end result had to be the particular kind of global society we now have. We can certainly imagine other outcomes. Why is English so widespread today and not Danish? Why are there about 2 billion Christians and 1.25 billion Muslims, but only 150,000 Zoroastrians and no Manichaeans? If we could go back in time to 10,000 years ago and set the process going again, time after time, would we always see the rise of monotheism and the decline of dualism? We can't do such an experiment, so we don't really know. But an examination of two crucial characteristics of history can provide us with some clues. Number one, the hindsight fallacy. Every point in history is a crossroads. A single traveled road leads from the past to the present. But myriad paths fork off into the future. Some of those paths are wider, smoother, and better marked, and are thus more likely to be taken, but sometimes history or the people who make history, takes unexpected turns. At the beginning of the 4th century AD, the Roman Empire faced a wide horizon of religious possibilities. It could have stuck to its traditional and very jaded polytheism. But its emperor, Constantine, looking back on a fractious century of civil war, seems to have thought that a single religion with a clear doctrine could help unify his ethnically diverse realm. He could have chosen any of a number of contemporary cults to be his national faith, Manichaeism, Mithraism, the cults of Isis or Cybele, Zoroastrianism, Judaism, and even Buddhism were all available options. Why did he opt for Jesus? Was there something in Christian theology that attracted him personally? Or perhaps an aspect of the faith that made him think it would be easier to use for his purposes? Did he have religious experience or did some of his advisors suggest that the Christians were quickly gaining adherence and that it would be best to jump on that wagon? Historians can speculate, but not provide any definitive answer.
they can describe how Christianity took over the Roman Empire, but they cannot explain why this particular possibility was realized. What is the difference between describing how and explaining why? To describe how means to reconstruct the series of specific events that led from one point to another. To explain why means to find the causal connections that account for the occurrence of this particular series of events to the exclusion of all others. Some scholars do indeed provide deterministic explanations of events such as the rise of Christianity. They attempt to reduce hum human history to the workings of biological, ecological, or economic forces. They argue that there was something about the geography, genetics, or economy of the Roman Mediterranean that made the rise of a monotheist religion inevitable. Yet, most historians tend to be skeptical of such deterministic theories. This is one of the distinguishing remarks are the remarks of history as an academic discipline. The better you know a particular historical period, the harder it becomes to explain why things happen one way and not another. Those who have only a superficial knowledge of a certain period tend to focus only on the possibility that was eventually realized. They offer a just-so story to explain with hindsight why that outcome was inevitable. Those more deeply informed about the period are much more cognizant of the roads not taken. In fact, the people who knew the period best, those alive at the time, were the most clueless of all. For the average Roman in Constantine's time, the future was a fog. It is an iron rule of history that what looks inevitable in hindsight was far from obvious at the time. Today is no different. Are we out of the global economic crisis, or is the worst still to come? Will China continue growing until it becomes the leading superpower? Will the United States lose its hegemony? Is the upsurge of monotheistic fundamentalism the wave of the future or a local whirlpool of little long-term significance? Are we heading towards ecological disaster or technological paradise? There are good arguments to be made of for all these outcomes, but no way of knowing for sure. In a few decades, people will look back and think that the answers to all these questions were obvious. It is particularly important to stress that possibilities which seem very unlikely to contemporaries often get realized. When Constantine assumed the throne in 306, Christianity was little more than an esoteric Eastern sect. If you were to suggest then that it was about to become the Roman state religion, you'd have been laughed out of the room, just as you would be today, if you were to suggest that by the year 2050, Hare Krishna would be the state religion of the USA. 
in October 1913, the Bolsheviks were a small radical Russian faction. No reasonable person would have predicted that within a mere four years, they would take over the country. In AD 600, the notion that a band of desert-dwelling Arabs would soon conquer an expanse stretching from the Atlantic Ocean to India was even more preposterous. Indeed, had the Byzantine army been able to repel the initial onslaught, Islam would probably have remained an obscure cult of which only a handful of cognoscenti were aware. Scholars would have had a very easy job explaining why a faith based on a revelation to a middle-aged Meccan merchant could never have caught on. Not that everything is possible. Geographical, biological, and economic forces create constraints. Yet these constraints leave ample room for surprising developments which do not seem bound by any deterministic laws. This conclusion disappoints many people who prefers history to be deterministic. Determinism is appealing because it implies that our world and our beliefs are a natural and inevitable product of history. It is natural and inevitable that we live in nation-states, organize our economy along capitalist principles, and fervently believe in human rights. To acknowledge that history is not deterministic is to acknowledge that it is just a coincidence that most people today believe in nationalism, capitalism, and human rights. History cannot be explained deterministically, and it cannot be predicted because it is chaotic. So many forces are at work, and their interactions are so complex that extremely small variations in the strength of the forces and the way they interact produce huge differences in outcomes. Not only that, but history is what is called a level 2 chaotic system. Chaotic systems come in two shapes. Level 1 chaos is chaos that does not react to predictions about it. The weather, for example, is a level 1 chaotic system. Though it is influenced by myriad factors, we can build computer models that take more and more of them into consideration and produce better and better weather forecasts. Level 2 chaos is chaos that reacts to predictions about it and therefore can never be predicted accurately. Markets, for example, are level 2 chaotic system. What will happen if we develop a computer program that forecasts with 100% accuracy the price of oil tomorrow? The price of oil will immediately react to the forecast, which would consequently fail to materialize. If the current price of oil is $90 a barrel, and the infallible computer program predicts that tomorrow it will be $100, traders will rush to buy oil so that they can profit from the predicted price rise. As a result, the price will shoot up to $100 a barrel today rather than tomorrow. Then what will happen tomorrow? Nobody knows.
Politics, too, is a second-order chaotic system. Many people criticize Sovietologists for failing to predict the 1989 revolutions and castigate Middle East experts for not anticipating the Arab Spring revolutions of 2011. This is unfair. Revolutions are, by definition, unpredictable. A predictable revolution never erupts. Why not? Imagine that it's 2010 and some genius political scientists in cahoots with the computer wizard have developed an infallible algorithm that incorporated into an attractive interface can be marketed as a revolution predictor. They offer their service to President Hosni Mubarak of Egypt and in return for a generous down payment tell Mubarak that according to their forecasts, a revolution would certainly break out in Egypt during the course of the following year. How would Mubarak react? Most likely he would immediately lower taxes, distribute billions of dollars in handouts to the citizenry, and also beef up his secret police force just in case. The preemptive measures work. The year comes and goes, and surprise, there is no revolution. Mubarak demands his money back. Your algorithm is worthless, he shouts at the scientists. In the end, I could have built another palace instead of giving all that money away. But the reason the revolution didn't happen is because we predicted it, the scientists say in their defense. Prophets who predict things that don't happen, Mubarak remarks as he notions his guards to grab them. I could have picked up a dozen of those for next to nothing in the Cairo marketplace. So why study history? Unlike physics or economics, history is not a means for making accurate predictions. We study history not to know the future, but to widen our horizons. To understand that our present situation is neither natural nor inevitable, and that we consequently have many more possibilities before us than we imagine. For example, studying how Europeans came to dominate Africans enables us to realize that there is nothing natural or inevitable about the radical hierarchy and that the world might well be arranged differently. For example, studying how Europeans came to dominate Africans.